Let's hope this works. Yes, it does. Can you hear me at the back? Welcome to our seminar today on becoming a good writer. I'm Heather and it's my privilege and pleasure to introduce Hannah to us again. We all know her or feel like we do now from last night. But I don't think there's ever been more opportunities than there are today to get our thoughts and words down in a way that we communicate to others. So whether it's Twitter and tweeting or whether it's Facebooking and Instagramming or emailing or whatever, we are able to put our thoughts down in paper in an incredible way these days. But I think for any of us who do it with any sort of sense of intentionality, we'd all love to know how to do it better. And who better to tell us about that than Hannah, um, who has written three amazing books that have been published all at the same time as she's raised three children or is in the process of raising three children and living with a busy pastor husband. So if you've read her books, I know you'll have come thinking, I can't wait to know how to write better. And if you haven't read her books, you must get down the bookshop and buy at least one of them and take them home and share them with others. You're going to be in for a treat today, so let's introduce Hannah. Thank you for all coming out um, to this session. And Heather is right that we live in a very unusual time in history as it res in respect to publishing. And a lot of the things that she told you I do, being wife, a mother, a writer, pastor's wife, uh, would have been impossible for me to do had I been born 10, 15 years earlier, probably. And so those of you who hear that and think, oh, she must be a wonder woman. It's not true. Um, I just happen to live in a very particular uh, period of time where the internet and the digital age has given me the ability
explore. We're in the digital age. It's new. It's brilliant. Anybody can be a writer. <laughs> so my experience with publishing, actually, it, it did take root within the digital age, although I got the tail end of traditional publishing. The first thing I ever had published was um, a Baptist Sunday School take-home paper. I don't know if any of you remember that or they do that here, but in the States, um, we would have a small Sunday school paper we would take home and read throughout the week. And so I had submitted a story probably 13 years ago, and they published it, and I felt like I, I'm the real deal, right? Um, but that's 13 years, and that's not very long to have moved from a very traditional route to where we are um, today. So as Heather said, regardless of whether you have publishing aspirations, regardless of whether you want to write books, we are all called upon to be writers in this moment in history. If you're in any way engaged in social media, you are writing because you're writing a status or you're writing an opinion or you're communicating through the written word to your friends, family, and sometimes enemies. So the question for us today is how to become good writers. Now my daughter um, asked me, she's like, what are you talking about exactly? What do you mean become a good writer? And I told her that the kinds of things that make us good people are the same things that make us good writers. And so the process of learning to write is not just about developing skills or learning tricks of the trade, although that is part of it. It's really about learning the calling of writing and learning the kinds of character, um, kinds of things that are necessary to be honest in your writing, to be fearless in your writing, to know what to give weight and honor to. And so all of those questions that go into the process of writing are really questions about our own spiritual formation and our own character. But before we get to that, um, I want to tell you um, a little bit more about this last book uh, that I wrote, All That's Good. I shared with you a bit last night about the process of recovering a vision um, for God's goodness in the world that it still exists, that it's still powerful, um, that we have to enter into life with that confidence and hope that his goodness will prevail and his goodness is the thing worth communicating. Um, and I think even when we talk about the gospel, we, we use the language of good news, right? It's that there is some idea, there is some news that is good, that is better than any other news that is worth communicating. And so when we come to the idea of writing specifically, you know, we have this broader vision of our lives that we are speaking the goodness of God in the world. But through our writing, we're also speaking goodness. We're also speaking for our words and the ideas that we send forth to reflect the goodness of God. And so I think if you've been on social media over the last few years, I know this is true of my circles in the States, it's just a lot of not goodness, right? It's a lot of angst and anxiety. It's a lot of conflict. It's a lot of tension. And what's fascinating is that this is becoming our major source of communication, right? It's overtaking things like newspapers or magazines or even radios. We're kind of fragmenting out into these separate realities where we have 
our social media feeds, where we have our podcasts, where we have um, these separate spaces. And that has a leveling effect. It's a very egalitarian world that we live in now in terms of writing and communication. And so we all have responsibilities within that. And one of the first things we have a responsibility to do is to keep hope, is to keep goodness centered in our own um, our own vision, our own sense, um, to believe that goodness, and I'm not just talking about this saccharine Pollyanna, you know, you get on and you're, you're testifying to this artificial goodness, the true goodness, the richness of God's character, the, the hope we have in Christ, um, the, the true, deep um, optimism that comes through the gospel. So first, we have to be convinced of that ourselves. As writers, we have to understand that that's part of our calling is to ourselves believe in goodness and to testify to that goodness. And what I find fascinating about things that are true, whether we discover them in the scripture, is that they are true everywhere. And so when I say it is the writer's job or it's your job to seek goodness and to testify to goodness, um, I think I can make a theological argument for that. It's valid and it is true, but when something is true, even the unsaved world will recognize it as true as well. And so today I want to share with you how um, one of the last century's most prominent voices on writing saw these same things, that he was um, aware that the call and the role and the responsibility of the writer in the world was to seek goodness and to communicate goodness. And so this, this morning we're going to look at both um, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 where he calls us to think on things that are true, lovely, pure, just, that passage. But we're going to have a conversation with him, with the Apostle Paul, and with E.B. White. All right, raise your hand if you're familiar with E.B. White. Okay, raise your hand if you're familiar with Charlotte's Web. All right, there, it's better. Stuart Little. Okay, so E.B. White wrote Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little, and we may think of him as a children's writer because he's most famous for those works, but he was also a literary critic, and he wrote some uh, foundational books on the, uh, the skill and the art and craft of writing. So if you are building a library of writing resources, you want to look up a book by White. Um, the two authors are Strunk and White, S-T-R-U-N-K, and white, and I, I think it's called Elements of Sound. Um, and it's a very short book, but it's a classic when it comes to developing the actual craft of writing. So in um, the late 1960s, uh, White did an interview with the Paris Review, which is a literary um, magazine. A and remember that the 60s was also a time of tumult and change. Right, so very similar to the space that we're living in now, where it just feels like the entire world has gone crazy, quite literally. And so we are, as writers, living in this space where there's a lot of shift and movement, and there's the temptation to want to react to what's happening around us. And in the midst of that, in the, in the 1960s, White entered into this conversation, and he talks about the role and the responsibility of the writer. And I just want to share um, some things that he talked about in terms of um, not just 
acknowledging and seeking goodness, but testifying to goodness. So it's the writer's job to testify to goodness and to communicate and point everybody else's eyes to those things that are true and good in this world. This is what White says. The writer's role is what it has always been. He is a custodian, a secretary. Science and technology have perhaps deepened his responsibility but not changed it. For myself, as a writing man, I have always felt charged with the safekeeping of all unexpected items of worldly or unworldly enchantment. And I love that he uses that word enchantment because that's what we're kind of giving our minds to over these last few days, those things that bring awe and wonder. So he says, I have felt charged with the safekeeping of all worldly and unworldly enchantments as though I might be held personally responsible if even a small one were to be lost. And so for him, part of the responsibility um, of the writer is to see, to recognize these goodnesses that are around us and to preserve them or to curate them to be kind of a collector of things that are true and lovely and pure and just and righteous and to preserve them and to communicate them in a way that other people who don't necessarily have that calling or that gift can then access them. So we are, as writers, creating perhaps a museum for people to come into and to, to have their eyes fixed on what is true and good and lovely. Now, I want to be careful when I use this word curator I do not mean an aggregator or a collector. And the reason I have to make that clarification is because in our digital age, it's very easy to confuse building a platform with being a writer, okay? So there can be the temptation just to collect other people's work and put it up on your social media and convince yourself that you're a writer. No, you're probably a marketer or an aggregator. Um, and so there is this distinction. When I say we are curating goodness, we are not simply going about looking for other people's work and ideas and then taking them into our own and repackaging them and sending them out. What we are doing is going through the hard work of observing, of looking for goodness, and then finding a way to take what we see and tell it to someone else through the written word. So what we are doing then is drawing people's attention to the things that they should notice. And in a world like we live in now where it's so busy and so chaotic and so noisy, the work of good writing, of drawing people's attention to the things they should pay attention to um, is simply invaluable. Um, and so we are not simply commentators on the sidelines. We are not aggregating other people's words or idea. And we're not, um, I've noticed this temptation too, writing is not to be used as a form of personal therapy or venting. Um, I want to say, to clarify this, because I told you last night that I write what I need to learn, right? I write, um, God brings me the things that I see or recognize and what I'm processing, but I try very hard to make sure in my writing that I'm not centering myself. So I'm always serving the reader. I may be the first one experiencing it in my, my orbit. I may be the one that God is using to bring it through to other people. But, but my readers do not exist 
to provide group therapy for me, right? So <laughs> I've, I've noticed that tendency somewhat online where it's like, let me dump on my readers, and you are there to give me feedback or feelings that I can process it. It's not what the call of the writer is to do. The writer is to serve the reader. The writer is to observe and to see and to look for goodness and then point the reader's attention to it. And so like Gog did at the beginning of time, we are using our words to speak things into goodness, to, to call things into existence and to, to shape and inform people's way of seeing the world. And so what we choose um, to say and what we choose to direct people's attention to actually does build our world brick by brick. You know, every time we choose to put something up on social media or choose to tweet something um, or choose to share something, we are creating the world that we then live in. Um, one thing about the digital age and publishing, I told you it's very egalitarian, but it's also very uh, user content. It's very rich. It, it's been built by us. And so if we don't like what we see online particularly, you know, we are the only ones to blame for that in many ways. Um, so I also want to say that when, when we think about what good writing is, it is more of a quality. Um, it is not about a topic. It's more of a disposition. And I think as um, Christians, you know, we can begin to think, well, I want to see goodness. I want to communicate goodness to other people. I, I want my work and my words to point people to the truth of who Christ is. And we can begin to think that then the only kind of writing we can do is um, didactic, directly spiritual or religious writing, right? And that's not the case at all. God is using all the different kinds of writing from um, nonfiction to um, fiction to fantasy. My daughter loves to write fantasy, and we have this constant back and forth because I'm much more analytical. I write nonfiction, and she's off in her world creating, I don't know, dragons and castles. And, and we've talked about how um, different media communicate goodness too. And so I want there to be no doubt that we're not just, when we talk about um, seeking goodness in our writing or curating goodness and, and spreading the good news, it's not simply in those more direct ways um, of spiritual writing. Again, from this, uh, this interview with uh, White, he talks about the fact that the writer has a certain role and a certain responsibility to society, to his readers. It is to point their attention to things that they should pay attention to. But he says it really doesn't matter what you're writing about. Again, think about White's career. He wrote everything from um, you know, Charlotte's Web to books about how to become a better writer. And he was a literary critic and an essayist. So he's writing this full scope of different genres. And he says this, a writer should concern himself with whatever absorbs his fancy, stirs his heart, and unlimbers his typewriter. I feel no obligation to deal with politics. Remember, this is the 1960s. It's a time of massive upheaval, both socially and politically. I do feel a responsibility to society because of going into print. A writer has a duty to be good, not lousy. True, not false. Lively, not dull. Accurate, not full of error. 
He should tend to lift people up, not lower them down. Writers do not merely reflect and interpret life, they inform and shape life. So again, this goes back to what we've talked about, that what you choose to point out for your readers will shape their imaginations, it will shape their hearts, it will shape what they are guided towards. And so for white, it doesn't matter if you do that in fiction, it doesn't matter if you do that in nonfiction, talk about politics if you want to, don't talk about politics, don't feel this weight of having to answer every question of the day. And I think if you're online, you may encounter some of that where this, there is this growing pressure to say, well, what do you think about such and such a controversy? And if you don't speak out about this, you obviously don't care. Or you, whatever writing you do should be directly to these things that are happening in the world. And, and again, White is living in this time of tremendous social upheaval, and he's like, meh. You know, I know my responsibility. My responsibility is to point to goodness. It's to shape people's values, to shape how they move through the world. And that may be political, but I don't feel any need for it to be political. And I think you should have that freedom, too, that as you are engaging in your writing, there may be that God calls you to speak directly to some of the um, things that are happening in our world, or he may not. He may um, just allow you to uh, be captivated by whatever unlimbers your typewriter, whatever gets you writing. So the call to goodness then is not about a specific topic. It is about a kind of writing. And this is where I want to bring in what Paul talks about in first um, in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And, and this was uh, the basis of the majority of the book that I wrote, All That's Good. It, it was this passage. Let me just read it. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I think we could also say write about these things. These are the kinds of things that you need to be writing about. This is the grid through which you evaluate the goodness of your writing. Now, that may sound entirely esoteric, and you may have come here saying, well, actually, I was looking for tips. I actually wanted some practical things, and I get what you're saying. I appreciate this large-scale vision, but how is this practical? So here's the thing I've discovered in my writing. My ability to speak and to write clearly, to speak truthfully, yes, there is a part of that that requires knowing grammar, that requires knowing um, if you have three things in a row, the one in the middle is going to get lost and put the emphasis on the last one because that's the one people will remember. So there are some of those tricks of the trade, but a good editor can help you with that. Um, what I have found, however, though, is the more I am growing in my character and my Christ-likeness, the more I'm a truthful writer, right? the more I'm willing to say the things that need to be said and I'm not obscuring them. Um, the more I grow in my trust and confidence in God, the more I have courage in my writing. And so I just want to briefly um, 
go through this list that Paul gives us, and I want to show you how pursuing something like truth in your writing will make you not only a good person in the image of Christ, but it will make you, therefore, a good writer. So one of the things, the first thing that Paul calls our attention to is truth. And when we are thinking about our writing, especially what we're putting out for others to read online in the digital age, it's just basic things like, is what I'm writing accurate? Or am I playing fast and loose with facts, with details? Am I taking a scenario and tilting it and skewing the facts just so much so it serves my purposes? Or am I actually writing so that truth is presented? And here's the fascinating thing about truth, especially in our um, highly fragmented digital age. I don't know if you've noticed, but I feel like we are existing in silos. Like we have our certain set of friends or certain sets of people who hold the same um, truth or facts with us. And as long as with, with their, those people, we can have a conversation. But if there's, there is not a commonly held truth. And so one of the things that Christian writers uh, contribute to the world is a deep commitment to truth because our God is truth. And so what we are working toward is to, to create um, a community around shared truth because truth has a unifying effect. If you say the sky is blue and I say it's purple, that's done. You know, we cannot have a conversation about the sky. It is not until we both have reached a place of shared facts that we can begin to unite around the common things that we hold truthful together. And so as Christian writers, um, we want to be careful and to hold ourselves to a high standard of truthfulness and accuracy um, because that is the only way we are going to even begin to build uh, a community with our readers, that we have this shared sense of this is reality. Um, and so, again, truthfulness will check us. It will test our motives. It is far too easy to twist facts in our writing to serve our purposes. Um, and it happens all the time. But if we are holding ourselves to this standard of truth and factfulness and accuracy, it actually makes us a better writer because our readers can enter into that. The second thing that Paul talks about is that we would seek whatever is honorable. And this is the idea of honoring the things that need to be honored, giving weight to the conversations that need weight. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a celebrity culture um, where image crafting is everything. And the honor we give someone is based on their beauty, is based on their power, it's based on their wealth. Um, and so as writers, we have to be careful not to fall into that temptation and not ourselves to begin to project ourselves in this way that, that uh, falls into that celebrity culture. So what we're doing with our writing to be good writers is asking questions like this. Who am I honoring in my writing? Am I um, crafting work that honors the image of God in all people? Um, what does God value and promote? What does he give weight to? Um, am I extending honor to all of his image bearers, or am I setting up certain people as worthy of, of honor through my writing? 
Um, am I preferential? Okay, the New Testament has a lot to speak about within the church that we would not um, be preferential, that we would honor um, all those who bear his likeness, not just the wealthy. And so when we come to the question of honor, this particularly online um, is this question of what are we choosing to celebrate, okay? What are we choosing to say that has weight and value and that's worth your attention? Because again, remember the role of the writer is to draw people's attention to the things that they should pay attention to. And if we draw their attention to things that are not worth honoring or not worthy of honor, then we failed that test of goodness. The third thing um, that Paul talks about is just justice. Um, I know there's a lot of conversation now about the injustices of the world. And if you are called to pick up your pen to write toward that, some of the things you would want to ask yourself is, um, does my writing reflect both the way things are and the way things should be? Am I not just giving voice to the brokenness, but am I giving voice to redemption? Am I, am I calling my readers' attention to the hope that this injustice is not the final reality, that this thing that we are giving attention to, while we must fight it, we are not fighting it in our own strength. We are fighting it through the power and the hope um, of the redemption and the final um, glory that God has for us. So I think when we're thinking about um, the question of justice, we want to ask things like, does my writing um, center human power? to overcome injustice, or does it center divine redemptive power to overcome injustice? Is it triumphalistic and naive? Is it hopeless and cynical when it comes to injustices? Um, maybe am I neglecting to speak about justice to preserve my own comfort? Am I neglecting those weightier things because I've built my own little nice space of writing, and I don't want to be troubled by pursuing justice. So all those questions call us sh up short, and as we're going through the process of writing, we're constantly asking, what am I giving attention to? What am I pointing my readers to? Is it just? Um, the fourth thing that Paul talks about is purity. Um, and again, this is the question, is there a wholeness to our writing? Or are we entering into it with mixed motives? Uh, a lot of times we think of the language of purity in terms of physical purity or sexual purity, but the way the scripture speaks of purity is that we would be untainted, that we would be the same throughout, that we're not entering into the calling of writing with these kind of mixed motives where we would um, be trying to use our audience rather than serve them. Um, so that is kind of a concept of purity. The fifth thing that Paul hits is loveliness. Um, this is the question of beauty, and this is the question of craft. Am I willing to push myself to develop my skills to write in such a way that is compelling and beautiful? Um, am I willing to make the sacrifices of time and of even giving up other things to pursue um, the value and the beauty of the work I'm doing? Do I realize that this isn't something that comes quickly and easily, that this has a price tag, but because 
God honors and values loveliness and beauty that I have to commit to that too in the work he has called me to? Or am I willing to settle for less than my best? Now, we all have different levels of best, right? You should not compare what you are called to do and write with what someone else is called to do and write. But you know, you know when you're slacking off. You know when you're doing less than. Am I settling for sentimentality instead of true beauty? So those are the kinds of questions that push us as we're looking through, as we're evaluating our writing to say, um, am I truly seeking goodness in this process? Am I truly doing the work that's going to bring me the goodness? Um, finally, the last uh, category Paul uses is whatever is commendable. And again, this is talking about um, those things that we should say, those things that create the world we live in. What conversations are worth stewarding? What conversations are best ignored? Because there are some conversations that need to be deprived of oxygen. And even though it is so tempting to jump on that hot take or to jump on that bandwagon because everyone's talking about it, there are some conversations that need to be shut down, and we shut them down by not writing about them. We shut them down by ignoring them and not drawing our reader's attention to them. Um, so... All of this, as we, we move through this call and this responsibility to seek for goodness in this new space that we are living in, um, in this digital age, it really does come down to these basics. And what it's going to require of you to seek goodness um, is creativity and hard work. It is going to be harder to write this way. It is going to be harder to be a good writer than to necessarily um, push into just the way the digital age is carrying us. You know this. The digital age rewards certain things, and it doesn't necessarily reward good writing because good writing takes time, and it is hard. It also means that you're going to have to have high standards for yourself and probably accountability. You probably, as you are going through this journey, um, as you're pressing into a calling or a desire to write, you're going to need to find a group of other writers. You're, you're going to need to find editorial help. And that may mean something as simple as uh, finding a website that has editorial um, oversight and pitching to them. You know, taking one article, one idea, one thought that you have that God has impressed on you and taking the time to submit and to deliver it to a site and let them say to you, great, but this, 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 this. So uh, the, the work of a writer is not this free spirit where you get to write whatever you want. You, as much as anyone else, have to live in community, and that includes um, accountability. And finally, I would say it requires a humility and a willingness to change. Because what I've discovered through my work is this and you may know this in your vocation, other vocations. God is using your work to work on you, right? So in Genesis 2, there's this interesting um, framework when, when God places Adam in the garden to cultivate it. The language in the Hebrew basically communicates the idea that Adam has been placed in the garden to cultivate the garden, which will then cultivate him. And so whatever vocation we're called to, it is it is through that work 
that God is pressing in and challenging us and showing us our limits and calling us to goodness and calling us to test, is this true? Is this pure? Is this lovely? And you will find that the work of writing will do that for you. And if you let it, if you let God in this process, if you humble yourself and submit yourself to the challenge and the confrontation and to the questioning, he will use it to birth Christ-likeness in you because you will be pouring yourself into this thing only to get it back with all of these editorial comments on it, right? And in that moment, you have the opportunity to say, can I receive this? Can I be humbled? Can I be changed? Can I be bettered through this process? So as I said at the beginning, um, God is using the work of becoming a better writer to also make us better people, and this is linked. It's foundational to the questions that we ask about our own writing and how we go through that process in this, this time in history. Um, I would like, if it's possible, for us to have a few moments of question. I, sh I should have told you that at the beginning. I'm sorry. Maybe I did, and you just didn't hear it. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Um, so if you have more practical questions, I'd like to take the last 10 or 15 minutes and go ahead and try um, to answer those. I know this has been fairly large, esoteric, about what it takes in the writing life to become a better writer, to challenge yourself, to ask those hard questions about your work. But let's get to some practical stuff. not writing about certain things. Yes. So the question was, um, I talked about not writing certain things or not of depriving certain things of oxygen. And what would those things be for me? Um, I, for me, I have to learn to avoid controversies that are um, not going to last or are in the moment facts or questions that it's that verse that Paul talks about avoiding disputing, right? So there are reasons that conflicts arise and there are reasons that disputes arise between people in the world or, um, you know, between brothers and sisters. And a lot of times um, the fuel can just make them grow. And so I try to avoid getting caught in the dispute while trying to figure out why is the dispute happening, okay? So I might write about, oh, I see this person, this conflict, what's really going on is this more fundamental thing that we don't understand. And I'll write to that while trying to avoid just this back and forth about a dispute that's happening, whether it's within the church or outside of the church. So I think it's those kind of things that I avoid. So the question is, how did I get start started writing, and how would you get started writing if you're um, considering this? Um, I did not write as a child. I um, actually never thought of writing. I, and the funny thing is, I probably should have. I loved books. When I was in college, I would pick my literature classes based on what 
papers we got to write. I know that's ridiculous, but I love that. But I never, it never occurred to me that you could do this as your calling or your career. I took one writing class in college just because um, I wanted to take a class from that professor and he happened to be writing. It was a writing class. So for me, um, I was a little slow on the uptake um, and I was in my early 30s and my daughter was about six and she had reached that point where it was undeniable that she was going to grow up, right? When they're babies, you can kind of push that away and think they're going to be babies forever. Um, and it occurred to me that I didn't know how I wanted to guide her. And as I watched her growing up, I had this moment of realization that um, we all turn into our mothers. So whoever I wanted her to be, I had to work on myself. And, and one of the things that I wanted for her was to have courage to follow God wherever he led. And at that moment in my life, I was not actively developing um, any specific gift or calling that I had. I was more involved in my general vocation as a wife and mother. And, and God really just convicted me, no, you need to find what it is that I have given you specifically to do. And so I was home with young children. The internet was available to me. And I thought, well, I like ideas. I like writing. I, I spent a lot of time, too much time in the comment section for blogs. And this is back when they were nice places to be where you could have conversations. And I thought, well, maybe that's the route I should go. And I remember committing to God, um, okay, I will do this for two years. Um, I will submit myself to the accountability of setting up a blog um, the blog was used as a weekly essay so that I was responsible to someone else to put work out there. And so I told my friends and family, I'm putting up a blog, I will be writing once a week. And that just made me have to write. And then it became kind of a portfolio um, of work that editors could then come look to. And at each step in that two-year process where I said to God, I'll give you two years, whatever you do with it, you do with it. Um, it, it seemed like he would never let it stop. So each time I took a step, I would be quite content to stay there. And he was like, oh, no, we're not done yet. Mm -mm. And so we'd take the next step, and he'd be like, okay, another one now. Thank you very much. And within probably 18 months, um, a publisher had contacted me about the potential of writing a book, and that is not normal. Um, so when it happened, I also knew I was facing kind of a, a crisis of faith to say, this is not normal. This is not the way it happens. You need to step into this. Um, so there was a strong sense of God guiding that along. Um, but it began with simple things like submit one article, um, think of an idea, write an essay, put it on your blog just so you're actively developing that gifting. Um, so it, it's taken me by surprise as much as anyone else, um, but that's how it happened for me. Other questions? Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, when I start writing, do I have a framework or do I just kind of let it flow? I don't let anything just flow in my life. <laughs> What 
what I've found in juggling all the different things that God has currently called me to in this season is I'm doing a lot of thinking before I sit down to write. So I'm jotting down ideas constantly. It's on notepads. It's on napkins. Um, my husband and I early on had this fight. With, he's a very neat person, and I probably lost two of his books. I just want you to know. <laughs> so don't write them down on napkins or note cards. Um, for me, then, I assimilate that all into a structure, and it works with nonfiction. I'm working within nonfiction. I tend to work from an outline, and then when I'm finally ready, I sit down and put on my keyboard. I do not spend a lot of time thinking at my keyboard, and I would suggest you don't either, um, unless you're doing the kind of writing that requires that freedom. Um, I know my daughter writes um, fiction, and it's a very different process for her. Um, she just goes into it and kind of has to get into that groove to let it flow. Um, and not hold it as con tightly. With nonfiction, I do know where I want to go, how I want the ideas to, to lay out, but I usually have done that work ahead of time before I sit down. Which of the three books do you like? Um, the question is, which of the three books have given me the greatest satisfaction in terms of content from beginning and be to the end, and why? Um, I personally, so I think my two favorites are Humble Roots and All That's Good, but for different reasons. Um, All That's Good was very cerebral for me. It was very mental, and I love that kind of work. It was like, oh, I can put down all of the ideas. Um, however, in terms of my own spiritual journey, Humble Roots was probably the one that God did the most work within me. And I'll just share this with you because it, I think it's so critical to understanding this partnership with the Spirit in our writing. Um, I started Humble Roots. I had this idea of limits, of humility, of you know, embracing our embodiment, the limits God has put on us is good. And I, and I pitched the idea to the publisher. They accepted it, and I got into it. And it wasn't until I was actually about one or two, maybe three chapters in, where this image emerged of um, botanical imagery. Um, and if you're familiar with the book at all, the whole book is based around this concept of um, – earth, agrarian imagery, plant life, um, and each chapter has a different plant that it kind of weaves into the telling of the truth and the story. Well, so this is how it happened with me and the Holy Spirit in my basement. Um, about three chapters in, I get this imagery of a, a plant, and I'm like, oh, that's perfect for this chapter. Oh, that's great. I'm going to use that. Um, and I think I wrote about milkweed and this this, uh, how it displays this truth. Okay, that's good. Move on to the next chapter, and wouldn't you know it, another agrarian image comes to my mind, a and it's like, oh, this is great. This is, this is about the vine and the branches and producing fruit and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm beginning to realize that, no, this isn't just one or two chapters. Like, this is going to be the whole book. And I write another one, and there's an image, and then I write another one, and there's another agrarian image, and about... Five or six chapters in, I'm like, oh, no. 
I have to do this for every chapter, it's not going to work, right? So uh, you could do it for one or two and mix in another imagery and be okay. But once you get to like five chapters where there's a plant image basing, the chapter is based around, you have to do that for every one. And I started um, outlining, okay, I've got this image for this topic, this, and I had this grid, and I had these gaps, right? Like I just did not have a plant image for these certain chapters. And it was like, dear God, you have got to be kidding me. You are not going to give me nine out of 12, right? So it was like, you have to provide this image and this metaphor for this topic. And I, you know, it was up until the last chapters until he did. And it was right up until those moments of, all right, now you're done with this chapter. I'm not gonna give you the metaphor for the next one until we actually start it. And so for me personally, that process of learning to trust God to provide the content, to provide the imagery, um, Humble Roots is probably the most wonderful. And we, we've got maybe five or ten more minutes. So yeah. Mm-hmm. It was pretty organic. Um, family and friends. Um, I, I'll tell you, the link that happened with the publisher was through my church family. So an elder in my church had heard that I was beginning to write, and he took, without my knowledge, um, and passed it along to other people, who then passed it along to other people, um, who used their influence to get it to the publisher, who came to me. And so I want to just pitch that to those of you who have influence and connection and power, you need to be looking out for how the Holy Spirit might be gifting people within your community. Um, that was, to me, the, the body of Christ working the way it's supposed to work, apart from my knowledge. Because I think a lot of times um, publishing game online can be so platform, platform. You have to have this many followers. You have to you know, do ads or you have to promote here. And, you know, Nathan and I talk about this a lot. I could probably have a bigger audience than I do if I did that kind of stuff, and, and maybe I should. Maybe there's an element of stewardship in trying to get your message out. And I do think that's probably a place that God will eventually challenge me in. But for this point in my life, it has been organic. Um, and I know that's not the case for everyone, but it's been a blessing that it could be that way for me. Mm-hmm. Other questions? How do you handle it if the writing isn't going well and you don't like what you're looking at? This is how I handle it. Oh, Nathan, I'm such a fraud. I'm a failure. I can't do this. Everybody's going to find out that I don't know what I'm doing. Can you make dinner because I can't do anything? (laughs) Um, If that doesn't work, (laughs) you you do just have to take breaks. And, And I almost think my life is so busy and raising children while writing, I don't have the luxury of waiting for it to come. So it's more like, oh, I have to go pick up the kids. Great good timing because I was dumped. Um, and so there is this real flow where I do think you need, if it's not coming, 
get up, move, do something else, go do your laundry, um, go get your, you know, go find something else and it will come. You have to trust that it will come. And I, I don't know how secular writers do that. Um, for me, it is trusting God and trusting the Holy Spirit that he will bring it one at a time for it to come. Other questions? do I go about doing Bible study to inform my writing? A lot of time. well, I, I want to say this about my background. Um, while it took me by surprise um, to be a writer, it did not take God by surprise. And when I look back at the life he gave me um, prior to this point of my calling, it was perfectly designed for what I'm doing now. Um, I grew up in a Christian day school, which had Bible memory from the time you were five years old all the way through. I went to a Christian college, had Bible memory. So what God was doing, and I did not know, is he was building into me this lexicon of scripture. And so now when I am coming with my work specifically, I am drawing a great deal on the lexicon that's already established and then what I'm seeing happening out in the world and then trying to connect those two and trying to draw the, to bridge, this is the reality that we're seeing out here. This is the reality that scripture's talking about. And then the way I tend to work, um, each chapter will have uh, a more exegetical, kind. like I have this overarching idea and then the chapters themselves tend to root in a specific passage. And so then I just, um, as I'm writing that pa that chapter, I um, spend it time in that passage, just reading over and over and over again, and trying to understand the passage. You know, not taking what's out here and trying to change the scripture to meet what I think. Again, that that emphasis on truthfulness, but allowing the passage to emerge and to teach me how to think about what I'm seeing out there. Um, one good example, in All That's Good, there was a chapter on purity, and it was um, based in the imagery of fire, um, the purity of the refiner's fire, and so I had this broader narrative about fire. Um, and then I really landed in Malachi, where he's talking to the priests who will be uh, refined and purified from their sins, and I used that. It's about three chapters that I really just kind of rooted in that. And as I was writing that chapter in the book, I was, I was very deep in that, sec that text of scripture um, to teach me the concept so that I could then communicate it. One more question. So the question is about my own reading and how I read for research, how I read for pleasure, and how that affects my writing. I don't know if you have noticed this, um, but in the digital age, um, I, my attention span has shrunk, um, and it is hard. Like, when I was younger, I could sit and read and read and read, and I'm finding that I am really struggling to read extensively. It could be that I'm aging too, but probably it's the digital age. I'm going to blame that. Um, and so I, I find that discouraging because people ask me, what is your reading like? And I'm like, it's terrible. 
it is awful. I struggle at it. And so what I have found is I just have to keep doing it. If I can only get through three to five pages, okay, read that, <coughs> town, go do something, come back, keep doing it. Because I do think this is a very valid challenge to our attention span in this world that we live in. Uh, there's the busyness, there's the chaos around us all the time. And to give ourselves more wholeheartedly um, is tough. But I do think, um, I do read a lot of fiction. Um, I love nonfiction just for the research. It works with what I'm doing, how often I try to pull in as many other voices into my writing and inform my writing. Um, if, if you uh, follow me on Instagram at all, I try to take a picture of all the books that I've used to create one book. And it's usually stacks of what, maybe 30, 40 books that I've been processing and thinking through to create that one book. And, and, and it's not just, uh, I'm taking these ideas, but it's like I, I'm quoting within the book or I, I'm directing other people to these resources. So I do tons and tons of books go into one book that I write. In terms of fiction, um, by the time I'm done with nonfiction, I'm pr pretty tapped out of serious, kind of heavy content, and so I just read really light fiction. Like Alexander McCall Smith is my favorite <laughs> author because it just requires nothing of me. Um, and it's very light and it's very character oriented. Um, you know, occasionally I'll get a good mystery. I love mysteries. Um, but it, it keeps me reading to do the fiction. And I also learn um, how to tell a story. Because I think I'll just leave you with this. One of the things that when I started writing nonfiction in the Christian world. I felt slightly like a fraud because I was like, I don't like a lot of Christian writing because I, 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 it doesn't capture my attention. Like I know I'm supposed to read it. I know it's good for me, but it can feel like eating your Wheaties sometimes. You know, it's like read this book because you'll be a better person once you read it. And so I was really struggling with that. And then I realized that um, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to model a different way that captures the heart, the imagination, the whole person, um, and communicates truth at multiple levels of our being. So for me, storytelling within nonfiction has been essential to be able to communicate with my readers. And so if you pick up my books, particularly I've gotten better in the, the last two. The first one, Moody gave me the contract before they should have and I didn't know what I was doing. But, but in the other two, I've been very deliberate in painting pictures and images and drawing readers in and creating the framework that they need to understand the deeper truth. Um, and so I think the fiction part of my reading has done that for me so that now I am committed to storytelling within my nonfiction because I, I want readers not just to understand the theology but to be um, to have their imaginations and their hearts captured by it and so that they understand it at levels that go beyond mental cognition. I want them to see a blackberry in the field and remember, oh, that teaches me about the suffering and the goodness that exists in the world at the same time because of the thorns and the sweetness of the berry are all in the same place. 
And so it's that kind of work I'm trying to do. And that does require a fiction element to it. So, all right. I think that's all we have time for. Thank you. Okay, you're free to go. Thank you so much for coming, and thank you very, very much, Hannah. It's really fascinating, I thought. Thank you so much. Yeah. God bless you.